welcome to this episode of Insufficient Facts. For the best listening experience, we recommend joining us on our website at insufficientfacts.com, where you can follow along with our notes and sources throughout the episode. There, you can also submit questions to the panelists about the episode by clicking on Ask the Panelists. Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by Super Ordinary, an audio drama about a young girl who discovers she has superpowers. There's only one problem. They're connected to her panic attacks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our science podcast, Insufficient Facts. We're so happy to have you here with us today. Um, We have some really interesting stuff lined up for you in terms of a topic today. So this topic, I think, is going to get you energized. It's going to get you interested. It's probably going to twist your brain into a couple knots, maybe. <laughs> it might, might make yeah. you a little... If you're little, lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky, it might might give you a, like a the equivalent of like a brain cramp. Um, so tune in for our topic today is time. And we're going to kind of take you through what it's like... To think about time. You've got time to listen to this episode. Yeah, you, yeah. you have a couple minutes to spend mm-hmm. with us today, right? So while you're spending some time with us, some of your valuable time, we'll share with you some of the facts that we've gathered about time and get you thinking about time and maybe it may be a way that you haven't necessarily thought about it before. Yeah. So just as a reminder, with you today are Christian. Raquel. And Kyle. Okay, so what are what do we have lined up for you today? So we have our usual gamut of, of segments. So we're going to start you off with our recent headlines, and we're going to talk to you about the health implications of daylight savings time. And some of you may have heard of it, maybe you haven't, but there's actually some some health associations, some health risks that come with radically changing the time uh, every daylight savings time. It was time. also on the bill in November. It was in, in California here in our lovely state of California. I hope you we, guys voted on this, my Californians. I it was. I, could, I, I think it was have. a measure to, if in the future maybe change the daylight savings time. It wasn't necessarily to no, change it. No, I think it. it gives the California Senate the ability to, to be in a permanent state of daylight savings time. So there would be no more daylight savings time. Like we wouldn't shift the time. But yeah. but yeah, it wouldn't like put that into effect though. I think it would just like put the, that possibility on the table, mm. but not necessarily. Oh, it doesn't. It this like, isn't something that is generally followed consistently across the U.S. Like right. 2005, Indiana. Right. That was when they decided. Yeah, there are some states that are like, man, mm-hmm. <laughs> which just... is funny because Indiana is a major farming state, and I know a lot of people think it's a that, farming yeah. relic. Yeah, I'd like to get rid of it. It's so. well, well. We'll talk about yeah. From a health perspective, we'll definitely talk about why maybe it's a good idea to stop stressing everyone out twice a year <laughs> by, <laughs> by changing the time. And then we'll go into our science fiction versus science fact segments where I'll kind of lead you through, um, you know, so- the concepts of time and traveling through time and and time is another dimension is is one of probably science fiction's favorite topics. So there's a lot to talk about there. A lot of um, examples of, of time in a science fiction context. So I'll give you some from some classic examples and kind of talk to you about the science behind them. And then Raquel is going to lead us through her her bizarre science segment where she's going to talk to you about how, you know, that old adage, that old saying, like, time flies when, when you're having fun. But mm-hmm. why why is that true? Why is it when we're having fun or we're enjoying ourselves or things seem to go by more quickly and when you're bored, time just drags on forever and ever and seems to go so much slower despite it technically being the same units that you're experiencing? Yeah. In I think this instances. is at the heart of relativity. 
<laughs> this is what's going to help us solve relativity. Yeah. And then um, for our last segment or our second to last segment of the day, um, Kyle's going to lead us through our classic segment where he's going to talk to you about kind of how do we even have units of time in the first place? Like before, you know, we had all these fancy clocks and atomic clocks. Like, why don't we have 24 hours? Yeah. Why, why do we deal? have all these units and why are they the numbers that they are? So he's going to kind of inform us as to how we ended up having 24 hours a day, 60 minutes in an hour, and so forth and so on. And then we will end our day as usual with our lifting the veil segment, and we're going to tell you kind of what's going on in our daily lives. So um, let's start off with our our daylight saving, this recent headline topic. So there was a recent headline in NPR um, talking about uh, basically daylight savings time and how there's you know, actually several studies that have found that there's health implications that come with this this change in time every or twice a year. So there's been a couple studies that have found um, previously where there's an increased rate of heart attack mm-hmm. in the days just after a time change. There's an increase in traffic accidents, essentially, um, the Ooh. spike after. Mm-hmm. So everyone's like fatigued. You know, you change the time. Everyone's like discombobulated. Everyone's tired. Everyone's grumpy. one is worse than the, than the other, right? Yeah, it's the spring, depending which way you go. So yeah. the spring one is the bad one. That's the mm. where you lose an hour. So you even if you you basically if you sleep overnight, you right. lose an extra hour. So you feel even if you sleep your normal whatever it is like midnight to eight o'clock, you really only slept seven hours. Have you have you seen that scene in Lord of the Rings when the Frodo gets like wrapped up like a spider? Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think that's how everyone feels. You've kind of been like maybe injected with some like paralytic yeah. venom and you're just kind of like <laughs> in a cocoon and really discombobulated. But the, the, I mean, the question is like, why does an alteration to our sleep cycle mess us it's up only so an hour, badly? Right. right. Yeah. It's only an hour that you're either losing or gaining. Um, but the real reason is that it, it messes up our, our circadian rhythms, right? So we have these circadian rhythms or these cycles of where our body is very used to, okay, it's kind of this is generally when I sleep, this is generally when I wake up. And then by kind of shifting that by an hour, your body still wants to follow the old routine and then you kind of force it to <laughs> get out of its routine. So it, yeah. it kind of really throws you off. Um And the study that was highlighted in this uh, recent NPR article um, was another one that found that another health kind of implication is they see this spike in patients who are admitted with um, this what's called atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is just a fancy term for a type of irregular heartbeat. So they saw a spike in patients that were admitted to like ERs or our hospitals with uh, an irregular heartbeat after this uh, change in time after daylight savings occurs. So you can have a heart attack, you're at higher risk of heart attack, higher risk of a traffic accident, higher risk of atrial fibrillation. I feel like it's just better to just stay home. Yeah, right? you be careful mm-hmm. out there, you atrial <laughs> fibrillators. <laughs> yeah, just just stay home at that point. It's like, well, you know, I feel like we'll that's- We'll write a doctor's note. Yeah. <laughs> Insufficient facts said to sleep in. Yeah, there's two, the risk of, of health of, of of health or heart attack or, or traffic accidents is too high, so I'm just going to stay home today. I, I would, I think that's maybe that's a cause we could get behind. There's yeah. like a lot of people protesting. It's rally. They say, yeah, they say protesting is the new brunch. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh God. Maybe we could get the millennials and the baby boomers in on this together. Maybe, or maybe we just start. Everyone starts work an hour later the Monday yeah. after. 
you know, that might be the bridge. Then you can sleep in that extra hour or you not if you don't want to and just force yourself. But then that might have might. And the worst part is it always happens on that like Saturday to Sunday transition. So you don't really have time to adjust it. Like if it happened Friday night, you'd have a couple nights to to get used to it before you have to work. But it's like I don't think this happens in Europe. Like, I don't think It depends so. on where the the population is that they're looking at. But if at. you're, like, working in London, it's, like, dark anyway all right, the time. All the time. In the winter, yeah. so it's, like... Yeah, you're, like, just... Meh, yeah. It doesn't really make much of a difference. Sorry, our London listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, when they're doing these studies, the outcomes you get really does depend on the population you're looking at. It does, yeah. Um, but In some cases. In some cases. It, it could very well apply across the board, but... Maybe it doesn't matter if you're Christian because you're up at 5 a.m. lifting weights. Anyway. I know, right? <laughs> I'm not up at 5 a.m. It's so funny because, like, I'm I'm not a morning person. Like, this morning getting up to – I go to the gym before we record listeners, so this is why they're they're teasing me. Um, <laughs> so I get up at, like, 6-ish to go to the gym, but, like, oh, it was a struggle this morning. I felt like Frodo. I felt like – it was not even <laughs> – I felt like Frodo in the cocoon. I, like, woke up to my second alarm, and I was like, I should get up. But I'm going to lay in bed for another 10 minutes <laughs> and then maybe finally leave. I wish you could bottle up that feeling. I know. Being in bed I'm when addicted. you're supposed to get out of bed. I'm addicted and to just, that like, feeling. just like sniff it during the day. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I think, I mean. Nasal sprays of that, that. I need a awesome cup of that. Feeling. I would be less productive, though. I just want to <laughs> continually just feel like I'm in bed all the time. Um but yeah, so I'm not a morning person, so it's still a struggle for me. But uh, I, 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 my, the person I go to the gym with, um, he and I both agreed today that today was a real struggle. And if we hadn't been meeting each other at the gym, we definitely wouldn't have been at yeah. the gym this morning. So how's your you atrial fibrillation? Yeah. My atrial fibrillation, it's it's, it's calmed down a little. It's, I don't have a super fast heart heart rate. Wednesdays. Anymore. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's our 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 recent headlines for you. Is to maybe you've thought of it, maybe you you've heard of this before, but maybe you haven't. But there are these like health implications that come with radically altering everyone everyone's schedule all at once. So maybe you know maybe it's a walk to work kind of day. You know maybe it's a come in uh, an hour later kind of day. But interesting things to think about in terms of you know when we alter time radically for ourselves. Yeah. The ever flowing river of time, <laughs> unabated. <laughs> Just manipulated by man. Um, so yeah, so that's the that's kind of an alternative way of maybe thinking about time. But the you know when we think about time in in this like science fiction like context, it's always talking about time as like traveling, traveling through time, time or time as a fourth dimension, right? And this is this is I think a, a favorite topic of science fiction for a number of reasons. It's very appealing as human beings to consider an alternate way of living or beings that could exist where they could access any point of time in their lives by moving through time as if it were a spatial dimension, right? So instead of having to experiencing everything consecutively one after the other, you're like, you know, today I feel like I want a rainy day in fall when I was you know, 12 years old, and then you kind of like... Yeah, you could walk down the hall yeah. to the past. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you're like, you know what? I I really want to remember, you know, hanging out with my parents when I went to Disneyland that one time, or I really want to, you know, remember when my child got married or something. You can, you can span... Flip a page in the book of your memories. Right. You can just <laughs> kind of pick and choose, you know, walk through your, your life as if it was a dimension and just experience everything, not in a consecutive manner, but just... 
kind of all at once, if that makes sense. Um, and there's a number of, of really classic and also a little bit more recent movies that have, have really looked at this idea of time as um, being experienced as a fourth dimension or kind of being able to go back through time um, through kind of funky physics. And some of the examples that you listeners might have come across, um, if you have watched any kind of science fiction movies recently, is uh, like Interstellar, which came out in 2014. Oh, I loved that movie. <laughs> yeah, Christopher amazing. Nolan's movie. I feel like it got kind of... it it. People are a little harsh about it, but I think it's it's really they did their due diligence with a lot of the the science of it, and it's it's a pretty... one of the producers is this guy Kip Thorne, who is like a preeminent scientist. Yeah, so at Caltech, as a from the science perspective, they really did their a good job mm-hmm. in like making sure that they um, were accurately portraying what this kind of experience what might be like. Um, and what it's like to travel through space and through, you know, encountering black holes or being near, near black holes. It is holes. Hollywood, so they got to push the envelope a little bit. Yeah. It's so you got to have entertaining. like. Yes. Yeah. You got to have like the some drama. laid back surfer cowboy, like, you've floating have, through dimensions you, of space. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey <laughs> in his Lincoln just driving through the stars yeah. past Saturn. And then he comes across Matt Damon in Cryosis, who's lured him there for. Yeah, Matt Damon had a quite, yeah. quite a year there. He's yeah. like stuck on Mars and planets permanently. <laughs> true. Yeah, dude's got to get a new career. No, he's, he's just doing. A space explorer. I think he's doing very well for himself. I don't think. I wonder he... if Tom Hanks was flying that plane that got him crash landed on that planet. Like those two together got to. Anyway, <laughs> it's like a combination of uh, what's what's the Tom Hanks movie with Wilson? Um, oh, Castaway. Castaway. <laughs> yeah, you get stuck on this Castaway island. Castaway versus. Tom Hanks lands uh, this plane in the, the Hudson. Martian, yeah. He gets attacked by Somali pirates. Yeah, yeah. All, all, all Matt Damon's been stuck on different planets for decades now. Yeah, yes, a lot of his life, is. probably most. At of least his Matthew life. McConaughey has access to this uh, extra dimension of time, and you can flow yeah. through it and mm-hmm. escape. Yeah, exactly. So. What are we talking about? Why are we talking about Matthew McConaughey floating through extra dimensions? Well, in Interstellar, um, this is kind of going to be a little spoilery for the end of the movie. So if you haven't seen it, this is where I would warn you to to skip ahead a couple minutes. Um, so in the movie, he uh, essentially they there's a couple instances where they they kind of toy with the concept of time. So at one point, um, he and his his crew are. Land. They are looking for potential planets for for humanity or their kind of ship. The the their the people who are on their ship to basically colonize and live on, because Earth is doomed. We've doomed Earth. Surprise! This is no one. This is actually <laughs> what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so Earth is doomed, and so they need somewhere new to live for or some, somewhere new for humanity to live um, in the solar system or in outer space. So they find um, one of the planets they. Uh, basically are looking into as a potential world for colonization is this kind of water world where they land on it and it's just covered you know there's there's a shallow layer of water covering the entire surface of the world so there's no land that's above water essentially and Matthew McConaughey's character was a farmer right he was a pilot, um, pilot. Pilot. So basically, farmer. yeah, because at this point. He used to be a pilot, but, but he is a farmer at the time, right? Okay. Yes. So that's why they wanted him on this. Well, he had experience yeah. um, flying like ships, like the one that he needed to mm-hmm. pilot for um, yeah. this expedition. But basically, mm-hmm. in the context of the movie, there's like this it's basically NASA has gone, there's no, there's no, um, 
space program anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and NASA has like gone underground and is, is now at this like secret remote facility and they're kind of like the like underground like off the off the grid off the grid like version of nasa where they're basically um doing these like this they're planning this big expedition in secret and it's funded by this this guy who has like a bunch of money and wants to save humanity um or so he says so um before NASA and all the space programs had been defunded and gotten rid of um Matthew McConaughey's character had had been piloting ships so he had that experience and he was also later on a farmer so he had some like practical farming agricultural knowledge as well which is good um so back to the water world uh so they're they have a landing crew on this water world that's investigating it they have part of their crews back on the ship waiting for them to return but because this world exists so close to a black hole um they experience the crew that's on the planet is experiencing time differently than the crew that is still on the ship so for every hour that passes for the landing party on the uh, planet on this water world, it's, it's the equivalent of like six or seven years uh, that the crew on the ship is experiencing. So the landing party, when they go to investigate this world, they're like, okay, we've got to be really quick about investigating it. And we got to investigate what we're here to investigate and then leave really quickly because if we stay here too long, then it's going to be the crew on the ship is, it's going to be years for them. But of course... Drama happens, dun, dun, dun. and uh, they're stuck for a little longer than they anticipated. And by the time, even though it's been only several hours for them, the landing crew, it's been the equivalent of about thirty-one years for the crew member who's waiting for them on their ship. And this is something that is is does happen as mm. you approach a black hole. Is time is different depending on how um, it kind of slows down as you get closer to uh, these the huge gravitational forces of these black holes. So this is something that could feasibly happen. This is rooted in in some pretty good science. And then the other thing that happens towards the end of the movie, um, spoilers again, is that um, ma- essentially Matthew McConaughey gets, he passes the event horizon of, of a black hole, which means he is no longer able to escape from the black hole. Once you pass the event horizon, that's like the point of no return. You're just going to be sucked into that black hole Um and there's no escaping from the, the gravitational uh, pull of the black hole. So it's hard he, to imagine what that would actually be like. Yeah, there's like all these like weird animations of being like spaghettiified and like you know like yeah. being like just compressed and like weird things happen mm-hmm. and physics gets. Like, actually, when you funky. pass the event horizon, you, nothing happens. Like you would not even notice it. Right. That's the terrifying thing about the event horizon. Yeah, it's not like you suddenly are like and like pulled through to the center the minute you like cross that little divide. You're just like, oh, okay, like I, oh, I. Mm. Would it be like walking through a door and walking into the same room again? Is that is that sort of what? It, if you pass the, the event horizon, you it's literally completely normal because mm-hmm. locally the space time is pretty flat, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't even like necessarily see yourself stretching out in your reference frame. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Just people who are watching would just see you get and then disappear into the center. And you're like, oh, my God. (laughs) And it also, like, happened over a very long time span for them, I guess. Mm. But very normally for you. It's it's hard to think about it. It twists my brain. Well, I would have watched you get redder, actually, and, like, eventually just disappear. Become more red. Because the light is being redshifted. Because it's being, like, pulled back into the black hole. And eventually you would just sort of, like, disappear. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there's no one to witness Matthew McConaughey going, being pulled into this black hole. So he's just kind of experiencing it, I guess, pretty normally. But then he finds himself in what is called a tesseract, which is if a 
cube is three dimensions. A tesseract is a fourth dimensional object. Mm -hmm. So if a cube had another dimension, it would be a tesseract. So um, if you can think of a cube, there's some good images of this online too. If you can think of a cube that has a whole other dimension to it that's perpendicular to every other dimension, (laughs) that's what a tesseract is. So in this tesseract, he is able to kind of experience, he finds himself in this this, uh, eventually his library back at his home in wherever, Iowa, I think. And he's able to kind of send this coded message to his daughter back through time um, to give her the information that they need so that they can save humanity and and basically build this colony that's orbiting Saturn, essentially. So he gives them the, the, basically the data that they need to be able to do the science to save, save humanity. But these are all real terms that, you know, scientists and physicists use. It's like yeah. tesseract is mm-hmm. a correct term. And a lot of the physics that happens as they get near the black hole is pretty accurately portrayed. Um, and the whole idea of, you know, time slowing down for as you get closer to to a black hole. All of this is, is pretty darn good science. So it's if you're looking for science in a physics-y kind of science fiction-y way, this is a pretty good um, reference point. Obviously, it's dramatized and, you know, Hans Zimmer's, like, thundering soundtrack really, <laughs> pit, like, ups the, the drama and the emotion. Um, You'll be entertained, yeah, for sure. There's, there's, yeah, there's a lot going on. But um, science-wise, they really did a great job in consulting and, and visually representing um, the the kind of astronomy, kind of cosmology stuff that's happening in Interstellar. Um, the other movie I'll mention just really briefly that delves um, into time and the concept of time in a different way is the movie Arrival, which came out in 2016, which has these um, alien beings visiting us from another planet where uh, essentially they experience time all at once and they communicate. Everything for them is circular. There's no end or beginning to anything. It's all kind of part of a, a circular experience. And so they don't necessarily experience time consecutively. And the premise is that there's a, a linguist who is basically employed to try and communicate and figure out a way to, to communicate with these beings, um, which is quite challenging since yeah. their reference, their frames of reference are so different from, from ours. They're alien. They're alien, and they experience uh, the fourth dimension as a kind of more spatial thing. Uh, time is more circular and can be visited at these different points rather than us who are just experiencing it yeah. linearly. Um, I really like the concept of this movie that the way that you think about language affects how oh, you experience time. It's, it's a really well thought out Well, the concept. twist is that the linguist um, has lost her daughter. Mm. Yeah, spoiler. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> and I mean, you learn her that husband has divorced her. Yeah. Yeah. Her life's not going too well. And Matthew McConaughey has lost his wife as well. So these stories revolve around someone loss. who has a sense of deep, deep loss, which and, time cannot resolve because time is a one-way arrow. Yeah. And Matthew McConaughey also has a daughter who is like his his one, his big tie back telling. home yeah. in time. And that's so daughters and family units and loss and And then that that's humanity. really one of the driving reasons why people would want to travel through time, right? Oh, of course. This familial Right. I mean, if you could experience time as a dimension rather than linearly, and you could, you know, you know, eventually my parents will no longer be with me. You know, they don't unfortunately live with us for our entire lives. But, you know, because we experience time linearly, there's no point that I could ever go back to experiencing, like, having them with me again. Yeah. But if you were to experience time in a circular way or in a way that 
Um, you could kind of pick and choose or go through and move through time. You could say, okay, well, you know, I want to go hang out with my parents today when I was, you know, 15 yeah. or whatever the case may be. And and so, of course, it's it's amazingly, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to conceptualize, but I don't even, to, to, to think about biologically what kind of organism would, would be able to exist in a fourth dimension where time is not linear is kind of hard to wrap my head around because obviously our bodies age in a linear fashion as yeah. well, like our cellular production. There's all these things that are influenced by time and age. So it's we'd have to almost be like energy creatures or mm-hmm. th- something, just thoughts projecting through the universe. But The best way that I've heard it described is that when we move through time, we experience it sort of like pages sequentially in a book. Mm-hmm. But time itself is actually the entire book compressed and you are just in a specific moment. But I love that visual of how we experience it as if you're flipping through pages, but it actually is just the entire book yeah. together. Yeah, so it's it's always worth, I think, thinking about time and not taking it for for granted yeah. and really thinking about conceptually what is time and, and you know, how we experience it, you know, each each person experiences time in our own unique way, but uh, maybe there are things out there that experience it in as its own movable dimension, which is just kind of mind. It's a little trippy to think about, but yeah. also really interesting. We hope you're enjoying today's episode of Insufficient Facts. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about or a follow-up question to any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, insufficientfacts.com, and click on Ask the Panelists. You can submit your question, and we may discuss it on a future episode of the show. Now, please enjoy the rest of the episode. So kind of in that vein of things, you know, we experience time you know, in a linear fashion, but there are also moments where we feel like, Time is going by really quickly uh, versus there are moments in our lives where we feel like time is is really dragging on, right? Mm. So, uh, Raquel, why don't you lead us through our Bizarre Science segment where you kind of tell us about why sometimes it feels like time is flying flying by. Having fun, yeah. yeah. So it seems like our experience of time is intimately tied with our emotions. And I'm sorry, guys, you're going to have to bear with me today with my voice. I'm going to be using my sultry, poetry <laughs> voice. <laughs> low down. Keep it low. Kind of yeah. Let's go through a, a journey through time. ASMR <laughs> voice. <laughs> so why is it that we seem to experience time as feeling like it's flying when we're having fun? So our brain encodes multiple types of memory. We have factual information which we call semantic memory, like my phone number, I can memorize that, or my home address. And then we also have memories that are autobiographical. So let's say I remember that I woke up this morning, and then I spent 10 minutes in bed, (laughs) and then I finally got up and took a shower. These are more autobiographical in that I'm remembering the sequence in which that I I did things. Mm -hmm. And this is known as episodic memory. Think of it like episodes in a series. And we have a fairly good understanding of how the brain encodes the spatial information, but how your brain encodes and interprets time is still totally up for grabs. We have no idea how that's working, but Mm -hmm. there are groups working on it and they have some hypotheses. So in the hippocampus, this is in reference to spatial information, 
we have a few researchers who got the Nobel Prize for actually discovering these neurons. So you think about it as if... The neurons that encode are are spatial memory, basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So you can think about it like if I take 10 steps forward, there will be a single neuron in my brain that we could detect is firing, firing, firing for those 10 steps. Mm. But if I take 15, it'll stop at 11, and another cell will start firing at step 11. That's sort what? of how these, yeah. That's weird. How these spatial memory cells work. So they can They're only count place to 10. Cells. This so hypo- cells that is a hypothetical unit. Number, yeah. yeah, yeah. But let's say I walk in around in this room, and maybe on the left side, one cell is firing, and on the right side, another is. So maybe we shouldn't be measuring space in terms of, like, acres, but in terms of the <laughs> number of neurons required to like for us to remember the space that we've walked through? Maybe, but it, it's a whole system. <laughs> so you have these place cells that fire at specific places. They're really clever with this name. And then <laughs> we have grid cells, and grid cells will fire in a specific geometric formation. Mm-hmm. So one cell will fire in multiple places as opposed to in a particular space. Hmm. So you can form a grid and understand where you are in terms of your place, where you're standing or where you're walking. Mm -hmm. So this is how you can form spatial information about where you are and spatial memory. Right, because we all have this like spatial awareness Mm Um, usually with, you know, you would think of it most immediately with like our bodies, right? Like I kind of know if I reach out, like what the area that I can reach out to, you have some awareness. Well, that's a little of, different. Is it? Okay. Yeah. But here we're talking about your location. So just like where actual, I am physically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So not necessarily where my body parts are, but yeah. just where I am as a being in yeah. reference to other things. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So as we'll talk about later in the concept of space time, it's kind of difficult to tease apart where you are in space versus time. Mm -hmm. So there's a different brain region that's involved with your, how you encode time. And scientists have, this paper was just published, so it does need to be replicated. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing this with you because it's exciting and it's new, Mm -hmm. but the same group, so the group that discovered grid cells It's the same group now that's looking at time cells in an adjacent brain region, one that's right next door. Mm -hmm. And what they're finding is that the way the brain encodes time isn't like, okay, right now I'm saying these words in this sequence. um, And this specific time, it's 902, Mm -hmm. it's, it's 903. What the brain does is it's encoding the number of events that happened in reference to each other. Mm-hmm. So you, you are encoding time indirectly by your experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's really fascinating. So it's not a neural clock like what you have on your wrist or on your computer or on your phone. It's more experiential. And another group did a study in humans where they found that when you administer oxytocin, and this is a um, neural signaling molecule that's associated with social bonding. It's the feel-good molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, you c- it can compress your sense of time, so it feels like time is moving more quickly. Right. So we have oh. all yeah. these, all these like place, like time cells and grid cells and mm-hmm. place cells. They're all types of neurons. Is that yes. correct? So, and our, our neurons are like our essential 
building block cells for our mm-hmm. brain matter. So like each, like they all our neurons are communicating via electrical signaling with one another, but they're just essentially like brain cells. You can think of that of it in that concept. Mm-hmm. So we have all these brain cells, but not every brain cell is doing the same thing or acting the same way yeah. depending on where it is located in in the brain, right? So we have all these different regions of the brain and um, maybe, you know, depending on your experience and maybe the type of of um, experience you're having and the chemical signaling that's yeah. occurring, right? If you have oxytocin, which is that feel good, happy um neurotransmitter or chemical signal, maybe that is changing the way your neurons, your brain cells are kind of firing or activating depending on um, that chemical signal. So maybe that's part of why they think maybe that's part of why we experience those memories differently than because of this association with this chemical, this good, Mm -hmm. happy, feel-good signal than than other memories. Yeah. Yeah, so these working together, your grid cells, your play cells, and the newly discovered time cells, they're helping you create a picture of your reality in terms of where you are in space and in time. This is a totally new field of science, and I think it's really uh, exciting and interesting to consider that the type of experience you're having can affect how your memories how are stored. Yeah. yeah. And it's also that also brings into question like how reliable are our memories, right? It's like when you ask people to to testify sometimes and it's like a day that was an average day, it's harder for them to remember if or they did or did not something that's like part of their habitual routine because mm. they've done it most days, like they do this thing all the time. So it's like, well, like it's like when you leave your house and you're like, did I lock the door? <laughs> you lock the door every day, but sometimes you have that little seed of doubt because Definitely. it's hard to differentiate today from all the rest of the days where you did mm-hmm. lock the door versus yeah. something that's novel or unique or mm-hmm. exciting that's happening. You're yeah. like, that's really putting that like sticks in Absolutely. your memory for a reason because it's different or exciting. There was an emotion attached to it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked about how your brain encodes time sort of in its own unique way. So now we're going to hear about but how do we how do we yeah. encode time? Right, because our, our obviously our neurons our, our brain cells, objective observations of yeah, time. Our brain cells aren't encoding time in sixty second intervals or minute intervals. Exactly. That's all stuff that we use as measurements. But mm-hmm. how did we even in, get there? So we'll let uh, Kyle kind of lead us through the classic segment of how we even have these these segments of time in the first place. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. Like, I had a really great friend, Matt, who was asking me, how come we have 12 hours in the day, 12 hours at night? Thank you, Matt, for putting this seed into Kyle's brain (laughs) so that he could investigate it. And Like, why 60 seconds in there, 60 minutes? Um, This actually goes all the way back to the Egyptians and Babylonians, Mm -hmm. if you can believe it. And we're going to end this little, this quick detour with atomic clocks, so... Thanks, Babylonians and Egyptians. You couldn't have even known what you were up against. Um, but so the Egyptians used base 12 system. So we use base 10. We count 1 through 10, 100. Um, but the Egyptians used base 12. So they divided their their daylight time into 12 units, mm-hmm. um, which begs the question, how do you divide the night? Because you don't have a sundial at night or like a moon dial. Mm-hmm. But they uh, the Egyptian astronomers picked out a couple stars and so they could count time at night by figuring out, like, okay, that star just went over the horizon, that star went over the horizon, that mm-hmm. star went over the horizon. Mm-hmm. So that's how they did it. it um, Which is funny because that's how actually a lot of um, animals end up either either navigating mm-hmm. or, or calibrating their, like, awareness of time or space is at night. Obviously, yeah. 
you can use the sun during the day, but at night you have to rely on the stars. And there's yeah. been a lot of cool experiments that have, yeah, there's been a lot of cool experiments that, that have proven that birds do navigate at night with some help from orientation via the stars in the sky. What I found cute to think about is that because the um, summer hours, there's more daylight in the summertime. They <laughs> They're longer, yeah. They didn't just say like, oh, there's actually now 14 hours of daylight. They just made the, the hour longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's always got to be 12, but that increment of <laughs> one of those so 12 cute? is just variating. So, variation. The, so then how do we end up with 60 seconds and 60 minutes mm -hmm. and like 360-ish days a year, which is 60 times 60? Um, so this goes back to the Babylonians who used a base um, 60 system. So they use all these different bases. So instead it's like of like using metric versus, <laughs> so like a computer uses two because it's on or off. So there's mm -hmm. two states. We mm -hmm. use ten because we have ten fingers. For some reason, the Egyptians used twelve. I think they were counting some like other stuff. <laughs> uh, and then other I, body parts. Yeah, then the Babylonians used sixty. I don't know what they had sixty of, but they used it. Um, and so I, I think it was easy to like make fractions out of it. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so it's a nice number. It's a nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I guess so. Sounds Six nice. is a good number. So the so Greek astronomers used this um, inherited systems, um, and there was a a couple scientists who wanted to divide the world, like the known world, mm -hmm. and so they divided it into sixty parts, um, and then they put like little lines through major cities. This is how we got latitude and longitude. Exactly. Right? This, this is also how we have. I'm assuming like 360 degrees and yes, our like mm. measurement of a circle and all of yeah. that. Yeah, and then this uh, later, this other scientist, Ptolemy, and um, he divides those 60 divisions 60 more times to get 360. Mm -hmm. And the first division he calls the uh, uh, minute prime, and the second division he calls the minute secunde, which just became seconds. Mm -hmm. So there's seconds become seconds, one, two, three, four, and then there's minutes, one. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to start saying, I'll be there in 10 minutes prime. From now on. <laughs> yeah, I learned it from Ptolemy. That just really ten rolls prime, off the tongue. Some prime minutes with uh, <laughs> 30 uh, second minutes. Secunde. Yeah, secunde. But this is cool. So, like, every time you look at the watch and see minutes going by, you can, like, you can go all the way back, like, probably 3,000 years ago, mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago, maybe, yep. to the Sumerians and Babylonians and Egyptians. And so the system is all inherited to us. But I was really delighted to learn that there is such a thing as a leap second. It just hops a little bit. And yeah, so like, not a leap year. So we have leap, leap years second. every four years. There's a leap second, and it's it's completely unplanned, actually. And the reason for this is that our our current timekeeping is um is super super accurate. But it turns out that the rotation of the Earth, uh, like how much we spin, actually changes. So uh, um, so we have to, like, add a second here and there just mm -hmm. to keep up with things. Right. So sometimes plates are colliding or earthquakes or mm. all sorts of things are happening that can change just slightly the rotational. Glaciers melting. Mm -hmm. All of that is affecting the kind of distribution of weight on the, on the Earth, and that changes how it rotates. So, for example, if all the glaciers on a big landmass like Greenland sort of, like, melt away, then that land, the actual Greenland land, <laughs> will rise up a little bit because mm -hmm. it doesn't have all this mass on it. Mm -hmm. And that'll change the moment of inertia mm -hmm. of the Earth, and the Earth will actually change its rotation. Mm -hmm. so, so sometimes how, you need to add in a leap second here and there. Yeah. How, how frequently does this happen? 
Um, it's actually been slowing down in the last like 10 years because this mm. was first implemented in the 70s. And they added a lot of leap seconds. And so the rotation of the Earth is... <laughs> the 70s, they were really they were really keen on leap seconds. They were like, a you really need a crazy leap second. You need a leap second. <laughs> but they can't... In- so there's like a governing body that does this, like NIST, like the National Institute of Standards and Technology, slightly different from NIST. But um, they get together and they're like, okay, in six months' time, we're going to add a leap second. There's no leap second planned at the time, like yeah. right now during mm-hmm. recording. Uh, but I think because the Earth's rotation has been more stable mm-hmm. in the last decade. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, this begs the question of how we even count time. Currently, right? yeah. today. And the way they do it, it's absolutely mind-blowing how this is done. Um, and what it all comes down to is uh, it's all about, it's defined as, um, <clears throat> let's, let's see if we get this right, uh, um, 9 mm-hmm. billion, 192 million, 631,770 periods of the radiation from a cesium-133 hyperfine level <laughs> ground state. <laughs> Jeez. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, are you still with us? Yes. Um, but the, but so cesium-133 is this very heavy element, and all of the electrons are arranged around the nucleus, but you can excite them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so the ground state is just like the normal homeostasis for the electrons. Mm-hmm. You can excite them a little bit, and they'll shoot out a little photon once they relax. And the length... Which is a light particle, essentially. Yeah. So the um, a light particle has a wavelength and a frequency, and mm-hmm. this particular frequency for this photon from the electrons relaxing from the cesium-133 mm-hmm. corresponds... <laughs> To a certain fraction of a second. Hmm. So cesium is just a, an element, right? It's a particularly heavy element uh, that. Right, and so the the reason for this like very specific number, nine billion one hundred. Yeah, I won't say it again. <laughs> comes from the mean solar day average between seventeen fifty and eighteen ninety two. Do we need to make a new mean solar day average, or is that going to be consistent? Yeah, um, huh. I don't know, but. I don't know. For those of you interested in how this actually works, you can go look up the cesium-133 atomic clock. A lot of fun. Um, But that's how we now basically really accurately measure time is we mm -hmm. we essentially have this frequency of cesium that we know at this certain frequency Mm -hmm. is going to have this certain kind of oscillating or moving or wiggling. Before I move on to, to talk about how we can bend time, if the uh, wavelength of light that is used to tune the uh, the cesium one thirty three is about corresponds to about the wavelength is about the width of your thumb. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but but the what, with such an accurate timekeeping thing, we don't have sundials anymore. We have these atomic clocks that can really precisely measure time. We can actually talk about how time changes, and time can be different in depending on what reference frame you're in. And this goes back to black holes, like in interstellar, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And maybe what uh, most people don't realize is that there's two ways that you can change time, time dilation. So we know uh, from special relativity that the faster you move, the slower your clock is going. Also, mm-hmm. from general relativity, the deeper inside of a gravitational potential you are, so the closer you are to a planet, the closer you are to a black hole, the slower your clock will go. Mm. So there's the two effects, either moving or gravitational waves, or sorry, uh, being gravitational potential. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so you, there are different ways to experience time. Mm-hmm. Not everyone or everything is experienced time, experiencing time in the same manner, if you will, depending yeah. on gravity and actual physical properties of where you are. Yeah. Um, and there was actually in what was probably the cheapest experiment ever. Um, this professor in the ni- in 1970 was sort of setting up for a lecture for his students and did a quick back the envelope calculation to say like. How much different would time be if you flew on a plane around the Earth once? And so he realized you could actually measure this. It, like the clocks that we have are accurate enough to measure this. So he tried to get people excited about getting a, a plane ticket. Just to like, he's like, let me give me two atomic clocks, leave one at the airport, and we're going to fly one around the Earth and see how much different it's going. Mm-hmm. Because not only are you leaving Earth's potential, gravitational potential, mm-hmm. so that time will move faster for the flying clock, yeah. but you're also flying, so you're moving relative to the stationary clock. So there's a kinematic effect, so you, the clock will slow down mm-hmm. that's flying. Mm-hmm. So that begs the question, which one will win? <laughs> it depends yeah. which direction you're going. It yeah. does. So he finally gets someone excited enough to give him $8,000 to fly Mr. Clock around the earth. <laughs> go, Mr. Clock, go. And fly. so he takes one of his atomic clocks on the plane, and he leaves one on the ground. So he goes east first. So this is the way that earth rotates. So now he's further away from the, like the potential, he's, and he's also flying relative to the clock. So he goes around the earth once. Okay, and he lands his plane, and they compare the time. So we'll tell you what happens at the end. <laughs> and so, and then he takes off and goes the other direction with Mr. Clock. So west. he's going west. So now he's going super against. fast compared to, yeah. So, so he's going against Earth's rotation. So now he's going very fast compared to um, the clock on the ground. So what does he find? So when he's flying east, the clock was faster by 40 nanoseconds. Mm-hmm. And when he flew west, the clock was slower by 300 nanoseconds. So when he was flying in the direction of the Earth's rotation, it was faster, and against it was slower. It was faster going east in the direction of Earth's rotation because the effect of leaving Earth's gravitational potential was greater than the effect of flying. Mm -hmm. But when you flew west so that you were going faster relative to the stationary clock... Mm -hmm. This, the special relativistic effect dominated. So he mm-hmm. was going slower. Mm-hmm. So, you know, time <laughs> isn't really, you can't count on it to be the same. Yeah. Depending on if you're flying in a supersonic jet, you know, you might be, uh, depending on if you're going east or west, of course. That's very key. <laughs> you really need to take cre- you know, count of, of what direction you're going, but that might be altering your, your clock slightly. Mm. So hopefully we've kind of informed you a little bit more about time and a concept of time and from a physics perspective, what time is, how it's thought about and mm-hmm. as a dimension. And there's a lot more going your on there. subjective experience your, of time. How it affects your, the way you're thinking about and remembering events in your life. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty complicated topic and an active, active area of research and still a lot of stuff we don't know about it or still a lot of stuff that there's a lot of questions we could ask about it, even though it's probably the one thing that we is so ingrained into yeah. our very lives that we yeah. think about it uh, very little in terms of, of how little we know about a time and how mm-hmm. it's different depending on, on where you are in the universe or how fast you're going. So, you know, if you have, definitely check out some of those those articles we 
cited if you're interested in learning more. Maybe it's a good time to rewatch like Interstellar or, or Arrival. Yeah. Um, and we're going to talk to you a little bit now about we're going to move into our shifting or er, lifting. We're shifting into our lifting the veil segment. Nice. That's yeah. a tongue twister. There we go. <laughs> and we're going to tell you just a little bit about kind of what's been going on in our past week or so in our lives. So let's see. Um, we're rapidly approaching the end of the year for me. So it's uh, teaching, teaching, teaching and exams and grading and trying to figure out my schedule for next quarter. I'm trying to also get my parking permit for next quarter. But nice. because You're I'm trying high, to get a parking permit, I always have a parking permit because I have to commute to campus. Is there like a lottery for those? Yeah, well, it's, as a it's difficult. I'm as a staff member, I'm guaranteed one. But because I'm hired, essentially, I'm rehired every quarter. Um, they have to have proof every time I reapply that mm. I'm hired for the next quarter. And so they gave me this form and they're like, oh, your your parking pass is ready. And so I walked all the way over to the parking <laughs> office. I was like, here's my thing. Can I have, can I pay you $243 for a parking pass, please? And they're like, oh, well, your status hasn't been updated. So oh. you need to go back to your payroll office and get a letter or have them update your status because we don't have proof that you're hired for next quarter. I was like, fun. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I just want to pay you an exorbitant fee so that I can yeah come to work every day. But so I, that's it's, tough. There's always yeah. bureaucracy, but mm-hmm. that's that's life. That's and I need to. I want to get it done obviously before everyone's gone for yeah. <laughs> the end of the year. That's so. why I live the metro life. <laughs> I wish I could. I, if I could, I would, yeah. but I can't, so I don't. That bus life is very helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Raquel? Well, recently I met a professor who got his PhD in Jamaica. Mm. And this is the first, yeah, his name is Alvin Holder, and he's a chemist at Old Dominion University in Virginia. And I've never met a faculty member who did their training in Jamaica before, so that was really awesome, yeah. And he really, like, opened my eyes to the possibility. One of of the things I want to do is to be able to go back to Jamaica and teach or train or something. Because you were... Born yeah. there, and your mother's from there, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, and I'm so removed from the culture. I just need to get back there at some point mm-hmm. and spend some time. So yeah, yeah. That was really awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, I hope to meet more people who've trained in Jamaica and interact with them more. Yeah. So that was cool. Very cool. Yeah. That's always nice when you can kind of meet someone. You're like, <gasps> I'm so excited to meet you. Yeah. Like, it's just, I like, I, you know, it's just like. It was like fangirling. Yeah. <laughs> he was like nice. showing me all of his pictures. And I was like, oh, my God, he's there right now, actually. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. How about you, Kyle? Uh, I am in a really wonderful lab, but um, there's a bunch of students who have been leaving lately. Oh. And uh, so. That's sad. I'm, I feel like I'm starting to, like get more attention placed on me, which I don't really know. Uh, Are you becoming that. kind of the the top tier? Well, a lot of the conversations mm-hmm. in lab with some of the students are all about, like, how the advisor hasn't quite found the voice for the lab at, like, we don't have the brand, or oh. some of these projects aren't quite going in the direction that they thought they would. Oh. And then, so I'm part of these conversations, sort of sitting on the sidelines, and they look over at me, like, oh, no, 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 not you, Kyle. You're fine. You're fine. Your <laughs> projects are cool. <laughs> Oh man! But, I, but you, sometimes you wonder, oh. like, what what kind of conversations are taking place in lab about yeah. your projects when you're not there? When you're not there, and I'm sure yeah. the advisor often has to wonder, what are my students talking about? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I mean, I hope they're genuine in their uh, in their assessment of my projects. I mean, the only the best thing I can do for the lab is to succeed, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. That only helps the lab and the PI and the lab's reputation and 
I mean, that's you would hope that everyone is just genuinely interested and wants you to do well. So that's all we can really. But I don't envy my colleagues who are looking for jobs. Oh, God, (laughs) no, that's that's terrifying and quite the struggle and stressful. And it's it's a competitive job market out there. Just Mm -hmm. because we're getting PhDs doesn't guarantee that we have a job lined up afterwards unfortunately it's still you got to kind of really have a good publication record and make a name for yourself so mm-hmm. but luckily that's down the road don't have to think about that quite yet <laughs> second year <laughs> gonna put that still off babies. <laughs> yeah, put that off until but that's also why conferences are good is to yeah. network yeah with people yeah and i've been going to a lot of conferences lately and i gotta start thinking about it soon i mean i'm only like a a year away from yeah. like really settling down and being like hey can you hire me yeah yeah so that's right around the corner uh, for me. Well, still around the corner, not yet here. So mm-hmm. you can can relax a little bit. And oh, and it was Kyle's birthday yesterday. So happy belated birthday to Kyle. I'm yes. 29. <laughs> so I think that's all about the time we have today. But thank you for joining us again. And just as a reminder, you are with Christian, Raquel, and Kyle. And this was Insufficient Facts. Woo! To keep up with our show, follow us on social media. We are at Insufficient Facts on Instagram and Facebook and at INFPod on Twitter. For bonus content, merch, and to find out how to get our episodes early, visit our website at insufficientfacts.com. There, you can also find our sources for this episode and additional research for the topics we discussed today. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us next time. This episode was brought to you by Super Ordinary. To listen to their show, visit their website at superordinarypod.com. And now, please enjoy a sneak peek of the show. If you're listening to this, you're one of many lucky reporters about to get the scoop of the century. You're welcome. Look, you all know who I am. This is your resident supervillain coming at you from an undisclosed location. And I think it's time everyone got a chance to hear my side of the story, sans news propaganda, don't you? I was 16 when I had the first panic attack that I can remember. You definitely don't see them coming, and you in no way, shape, or form asked for it. It closes up your chest, convinces you there's not an ounce of oxygen in the room. Your vision tunnels in... Everything sounds far away. Swallow. It's terrifying. Hey, 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 hey. You okay? It's okay. I'm right here. Just breathe. Just breathe. You want me to turn this off? See? I told you, it was definitely me that caused it, not some freak accident. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. And? And that was so cool! I can't believe you have superpowers! Super Ordinary is coming September 2018. Until then, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SuperOrdPod.